The human butt has long been a source of our joy, sadness, amusement, self-consciousness, judgment, and lust. All of these emotions are especially in play for the female butt. But why did we evolve to have a more pronounced backside than our primate ancestors? Why did the modern objectification of the female butt begin a little bit more than 200 years ago? And what forms has that ideal butt taken since then? We discuss these things and more with essayist, journalist, and Radio Lab editor and reporter Heather Radke based on her new book, Butts, A Backstory. Heather, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing today? Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm I'm good. I'm good. It's my pleasure. Okay. I, I really like to start these author conversations by asking what your goal was with this book. And oftentimes with a book, uh, that may be fairly obvious based on the title or subtitle, but I think it's an especially important question to ask you uh, based on butts a backstory, not really giving people a whole lot of of uh, detail on what this book entails. So what exactly was your goal with butts? Oh man, what a question. Um, <laughs> it's such a hard question to answer because, you know, as you write a book, you know, it took me five years or something to write this book. And it obviously, to some extent, you have an idea of what it's going to be at the beginning and then it changes as you go. And I mean, I think, I think maybe my goal was to have people think about butts and bodies in a new and complicated way. And to maybe think a little bit harder about a part of ourselves that it's kind of easily dismissed or kind of easily laughed at. And that's not to say, I always say this, cause it's like, it's not to say that the book isn't like fun or that there's not fun parts of the book, but that I wanted to kind of offer something that would, would allow us to kind of explore something that we, yeah, that we don't, we maybe just take for granted or we don't take that seriously. And in part as a provocation to say, what else might we not take so seriously that might be kind of full of stories and interesting important, you know, histories that that have gone on under explored. Well, I think much like the butt in general can elicit uh, so many different positive and negative emotions. I think this book uh, doesn't necessarily elicit negative emotions, but a lot of insight to go with uh, the occasional chuckle too. For, as a matter of fact, I think it was in the intro that I learned a new term that I'm going to have you uh, explain to the people now. What exactly is a gluteal cleft? <laughs> I mean, it's a butt crack, I think. <laughs> I, I, one of the things I talked about in the, I talked about in the introduction is, you know, we kind of don't have like a correct word for this part of our body, you know, like for example, breasts, we know breasts are the right words, even though we often call them something else, boobs or whatever. Um, but with butts, we don't really have a correct right word and I actually went and talked to a few doctors or just, you know, casually, it wasn't that deep of a reporting journey on that, that particular part. But I asked a few doctors who are like colorectal surgeons, people who like have to talk about butts, what they call it. And one of them called it a gluteal cleft, but that's, that's actually just the butt crack. So it's not the whole, it's not the whole thing, but other doctors mostly call it like, you know, butt or tush or whatever they they also use the euphemisms and while you take a, a special interest in the female butt and we'll certainly get into that you also look at the evolution of the butt and why humans do have a more pronounced backside uh, than not just our primate ancestors but also pretty much every other creature in the animal kingdom why exactly is this heather we are in fact the only animals that have butts at least in the way that we mean the word but obviously like lots of animals have like a joint where their um leg meets their torso essentially but the muscles that make up the butt so the gluteus maximus and a couple of other ones are uniquely human and they evolved um basically to help us run there was a there's a scientist named daniel lieberman who did a lot of work that some people are actually already familiar with because it was pretty popular in the early 2000s where he he discovered that one of the most important um, kind of evolutionary adaptations were a set of adaptations that allowed early humans, early hominids to be able to run. Because if you can run, you can actually hunt big animals like antelope and kudu and these kind of big four-legged creatures that can run really fast, but they can't run really fast for a really long time. But humans have this kind of um, extremely good endurance capability because of a set of adaptations that include like your Achilles tendon and the way that, um, 
your like you know like the way we sweat and the you know like uh i'm trying to think of a few other ones like even like the runner's high people think is part of this set of adaptations but one of the adaptations is your butt because it helps you to basically not fall forward when you're running so that's why we have butts and it's also like there's no other creature that can run quite in this way and so we're the only ones who do have butts but that's of course only the muscle part of the butt there's also like other other parts of the butt that I'm sure we'll t- we'll talk about oh yeah and I love that you got to visit with Dan Lieberman he's actually a former guest on this show and his book exercise which came out a couple years ago is literally one of my all-time favorites so that was cool you also uh you also got into Big Frida, another former guest on this show. We may talk about oh. working a little bit later on. You spoke with another scientist by the name of Jamie Bartlett of the University of Colorado, who actually considers the human butt a Swiss army knife. Why is uh, why is this Jamie Bartlett's belief? I first met Dan Lieberman when I was working on a story for Radiolab where he suggested that we go to this kind of famous race in Arizona where humans run against horses like it's like human v horse I mean, it's called the man against horse race it's pretty straightforwardly titled <laughs> and humans win so it's like a sort of um you know you can really see his theory in action there and he'd run the race and and when that story came out jamie bartlett wrote me and was like you know although butts are for running probably they also are probably for like a lot of other things and so like a Swiss army knife, they're, you know, they're used in many different ways for many different kinds of motion in the body. So jumping, climbing, um, you know, she said to me, like, when you look at a track team, the people with the biggest butts aren't actually the long distance runners. It's the, it's like the pole vaulters or the long jumpers or something. And so that, so her point was like, well, it did help us run. It probably also helped us with all these other things when we were in the early days of hominid evolution. And that was that just shows the kind of multi- multiple ways that the butt is used and was used as part of our evolutionary journey. And speaking of evolution, animals and really all living organisms, they evolve typically for survival, to protect themselves at times from potential prey, in part by blending in with their environment. But how are male peacocks an exception to this? And does this challenge the belief that women's butts are more pronounced than men's specifically for the ch- uh, sake of childbirth? Yeah, I mean, it's a really complicated question. So the and it's one that's been complicated for as long, you know, since Darwin, basically. So, you know, Darwin kind of famously says, like, the, you know, the peacock, like, I forget the exact quote, but basically, the peacock kind of drove him crazy, because it's such, um, you know, as evolutionary biologists say, it's such an expensive adaptation to have this sort of extremely big really visible tail that the the peacock has to drag around you know it's like heavy it's almost heavier than the body it's like a huge ordeal right so like why possibly what is the evolutionary purpose this could possibly serve and you know the peacock is this ultimate example of sexual selection rather than you know the kind of uh survival of the fittest mode of evolution it's actually it's a it's about attracting mates and it's part of what evolutionary biologists called ornaments and armaments so like other things in this category are like you know, horns on a, um, like a deer or a stag or whatever. So, and you know, the re that, so that there's evolutionary pressure to basically be attractive to your mates. And, um, you know, this, we sort of see this clearly in the peacock tail, but there's a question about whether the female, butt is one of these adaptations and evolutionary psychologists really believe that sexual selection was driving the way that female bodies looked, this was like a very popular theory in the nineties and that they were always kind of reaching for these evolutionary like explanations for why bodies look the way they do, which don't actually have a evolutionarily by like evolutionary biologists basically disagreed with them. So the, the question there, there was this kind of theory that you'll see in a lot of popular magazines, which is that women's butts are big or fatty or whatever, or men find women's butts attractive because they are symbols of fertility, because essentially the woman's butt that's big has more fat on it is, uh, you know, a, a, what they call an honest signal of, um, sexual potency or like the ability to carry more children. And there's no, actually, there's no evidence of that at all. And there's really not that much evidence that it's, you know, that it, is demonstrative of anything at all, except for just like the wide variety of human variation. So I was really interested in that question and kind of um, why it became like, why that is such a 
tempting thing for us all to believe because it's not the only evolutionary psychology thing that's like very popular, but it is one I hear a lot because I've been writing a book about buns for five years. And, you know, I talked to a bunch of scientists about it and they're just like, there's basically no reason to think that. And and it, while it could be true, it also very much could not be true. And we there's really almost no way to prove it. So I think one of the things to sort of take away from that is just this idea that it can be really tempting to find look for scientific evolutionary explanations when there really aren't any, because it helps us to justify some idea we have about ourselves or about the world. And it is, it's a kind of way to close off inquiry instead of to kind of open it up. So yeah. So like, do men like women with big butts because, you know, they're more fertile, probably not. And also like, not all men like women with big butts. And also like, there's all of these um, many other explanations for where our metaphoric and symbolic ideas about butts come from. And that's basically the rest of the book is me exploring those ideas. Yeah, I thought I thought it was a great explanation that you gave, and it really did transition nicely into a more specific look at the modern objectification of the female butt, which shockingly for me goes back more than 200 years. An obsession with butts took over in London, England in the late 1700s and early 1800s. So much so, and this may uh, cause some people to cringe here, that there were literal fart clubs where people would get together and drink different juices to find out what kinds of sounds and smells they produce. That just makes me shudder to think about, although my <laughs> kids loved that factoid. Uh, it can be they argued <laughs> that it was around this time, a little more than 200 years ago, that the modern objectification of the female butt began with someone by the name of Sarah Bartman. Now, I know this story has become much more well-known over the last 20-plus years now, but who exactly is Sarah Bartman for those who are unfamiliar, and why is she so important to this story? Yeah, so Sarah Bartman was an indigenous South African woman who was brought up to London in the early 1800s by two men who um, displayed her as a freak show in London because she had a big butt. And she was they sort of used her as a symbol of these kind of racist ideas about black women that were, you know, had been around for about a century, but this, they were really kind of gearing up and getting more potent at this time. And the story of Sarah Bartman was one of the reasons why, you know, like they basically used her as a way to, you know, create and codify these, these stereotypes. So she was displayed in London um, for, Lots and lots of people came and saw her. It was a very popular show. There was eventually a trial, which is one of the ways that we know a lot of a lot more about Sarah Bartman than we might have, because at that time there was a lot of angst in London about slavery. And there was some fear that she was actually enslaved. And so there was a trial to sort of figure that out. There the determination of the trial was that she was she was not enslaved, although that still is contested by scholars today. And eventually she ended up in Paris um, where she died very young and she, her body was dissected by a really famous scientist, scientist named George Cuvier, who used the autopsy report as a way to, you know, basically reinscribe and create, you know, documentation for the stereotype of the big butted African woman as a hypersexual specimen. So he was really invested in an idea that African people were less human than European people. And he used this autopsy report as evidence for that, but then also for evidence that she was, you know, because of her butt, she was a more sexual, sort of sexually potent and sexually, um, you know, hypersexual person than white women. And then he displayed her body parts, parts of her body in his museum at where they stayed on display until the 1980s. So into both of our lifetimes, I assume. And, you know, I mean, it's a really intense and kind of grotesque story in a lot of ways. Um, but I think it really shows us clearly how ideas about race and gender are just so deeply and powerfully, you know, projected onto the body in general and specifically onto the butt. And, you know, throughout the 19th and er into the early 20th century, that autopsy report was cited as evidence for, you know, racist ideas and ideas about, you know, sex workers and hyper hypersexuality and race. And in some ways it's still with us, even if people aren't actually citing that specific autopsy report. Yeah, that's an interesting thought there. And it's also it's it's equally horrific to know that it wasn't just this one scientist who 
was trying to prove this by studying uh, black butts and, and I guess, uh, exotic or foreign butts. But th there was a general scientific obsession in this regards to try and prove uh, these uh, an idea or ideas that certain races are above or below others, specifically based on the size of butt. Yeah, I mean, interestingly, and you know, sort of off. You know, it's an awful story in the 19th century. You know, the idea of race itself is is being created, and you know, this was a project that goes back to at least two centuries previously. And for you know, we think of races about skin color but by the 19th century there these like so-called racial scientists are using um you know other parts of bodies to determine racial hierarchy you know kind of famously a thing a lot of people have heard about is the use of head shape Stephen Jay Gould wrote a lot about this in the in the 80s and 90s and it's his work is actually one of the reasons that the story of Sarah Bartman became more well known but also you know the size of noses as which you know maybe makes some sense with racial stereotypes, there's also the size of butts and the shape of butts. I mean, it's every, even like there's these books you can read where they talk about like toe length and as a marker of beauty. So they, they become kind of obsessed and interested in this, in these other kinds of bodily features as markers of race. And, you know, they're, they're trying to create racial hierarchies, but because race is kind of in a sense, not real, they're trying trying to find these things that will they can sort of hold on to to make it real. And of course any racial project like this, you know, they're 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 creating stereotypes about black people and they're creating stereotypes about white people that are always in juxtaposition for this of this. So, you know, the big butted black, hypersexual black woman is the stereotype that Cuvier is creating and you know many other scientists are citing and you know reifying, but also this this sort of sexually innocent um you know, pure white woman is also being created in juxtaposition from this. So it's all kind of goes hand in hand. And it's a big, it's like a big and complex story of 19th century race science that, you know, there's, there's lots of great, great books on it. If people are interested in finding out more, there's one, my favorite is called the history of white people by Nell Painter. Despite some of these awful ideas, those uh, those pure white women of the 1800s decided to make uh, the bustle a popular thing. What exactly is this for somebody who's unfamiliar and why would something that is such a colossal inconvenience become so popular? Well, that's a good question. I mean, that second question you could ask about just about any uh, undergarment that became popular in the 19th century. But the bustle is basically like a big fake butt that women strapped onto their bodies at the end. It was really popular in the 1870s and 80s. And, um, you know, it was made of steel or springs or, you know, kind of like uh, pads, kind of like lobed pads um, or some women just stuffed um, newspaper into like a pillowcase and pinned that to them. So it, it took all kinds and it was really popular across classes. And, um, you know, it was like the fashion and there's a lot of reasons for why this might've been, you know, they're one of the, like one of the many theories is that the bustle made your waist look thinner. Another one is that, um, in the mid 19th century, there was this really big fad of the like huge petticoats, so like those big hoop skirts you see in like kind of like Civil War era um, iconography. And it, they were so big that women couldn't actually walk through doors. So the bustle kind of is a way that they can still have this like big skirt, but they can actually walk through the door. So those are a couple of the dominant theories. But then there's also a theory that you see throughout kind of like, it's almost like a historical rumor you see in different parts of this historical record that the bustle is in part inspired by the body of Sarah Bartman. And I, I was really interested in this because it felt like a pretty old echo of something that we see today, which is a kind of mode of cultural appropriation. Um, and the idea is that, you know, whether women kind of consciously knew it or not, that wearing this particular kind of silhouette was, you know, it, it looked a lot like pretty famous images of Sarah Bartman's silhouette that that were, you know, people would have seen throughout the 19th century in a variety of different places. So it was like one of the questions I was asking. And I think that the bustle can kind of also offer us a kind of a, a way of thinking about cultural appropriation, because 
of this kind of move you can imagine these women making, which is like they literally are putting on this big fake butt that looks like Sarah Bartman's butt, and then they're taking it off. And both of those gestures of putting on and taking off, I think, tell us something about what cultural appropriation is about, which is this kind of playing around in blackness in stereotypes of black women and you know be discarding it when you're done with it you know when it's no longer suits you so I'm sure we'll get to it but you know this was something I definitely saw in the last in the work I did over about the last 20 years you know I think Miley Cyrus is kind of the ultimate example of it in the last you know 20 15 20 years yeah no doubt about that before that though who was Gordon Conway and how did he help reshape fashion and feminism with regards to the butt in the early 1900s Actually, Gordon Conway's a lady, and she's uh, oh, she, my apologies. She her archives are right right uh, in Austin, and I think the there's the woman who did most of the work about it. She lives in Austin. Um, so Gordon Conway was a, a illustrator in the 19 teens and 20s, and she helped to bring in the the image of the flapper. So she kind of helped to redefine what femininity was going to look like in the 20th century before. Gordon Conway and a few other kind of big illustrators helped to create this new image. Um, you know, it was the Gibson girl and like this kind of, uh, you know, the bustle, the corset, these, these types of femininity of this sort of super curvy woman were the body ideals. And they were, they were shaped through, you know, bustles, corsets, these kind of um, undergarments that actually shaped, you know, created a new body underneath, underneath a dress. And by the 1920s, this has started to change change and the flapper which i think is an image that most people have some familiarity with it's like a super straight bodied um corsetless woman who doesn't have a lot of curves is often quite thin um you know people call them the rectangle woman this becomes the kind of dominant body ideal and there's an association of the flapper with ideas of freedom and liberation and there's a lot of historical reasons for that but like you know i think it's also important to point out that some there's a very famous fashion historian named Valerie Steele who's really questioned that idea, you know, that we think you're freed from the course of it and like all of a sudden, you know, life is great. You don't have to have this, all these crazy contraptions on yourself. But in the 1920s is also the time when we start to see fad diets and bathroom scales and plastic surgery all are kind of invented during this period of time. And women are, instead of, you know, the idea is basically instead of having a corset on the outside of the body, it comes inside the body and women have to kind of control themselves so that they're eating less and, you know, exercising to some extent and managing their bodies themselves. That's right. You wrote that the flapper look of the 1920s demanded masochistic self-control or even self-harm. You just mentioned that plastic surgery was really becoming a thing around this time, considering some of the horrific results of plastic surgery in modern times with it having a chance to evolve over the last hundred years. I'm guessing that. Uh, some of the yeah. worst cases of plastic surgery gone bad were horrific, if not uh, costing individuals their lives at times. Yeah, you know, I I tried to find out more about this. I I never quite did. I always kind of wanted to spend a little more time on it. But the um, the history of plastic surgery is super interesting. And you know, the 1920s, like just surgery of any kind, is pretty new. Like, and general anesthesia is pretty new at that point. So, um, and actually in Chicago, that is where some of the work that I found out about was being done. And yeah, I mean, all I can say is like, I can only imagine that you're right, that it was not, uh, it was not a great time to be having plastic surgery. And you must have really wanted your body to be different, like quite badly to have to, you know, voluntarily have um, surgery in that, in that period. So I think that that just tells us something about how, how potent these ideas about body ideals can be, you know? For those who are listening right now wondering if social media was the beginning of people making histrionic claims as to society coming to an end for one reason or another, that's not the case, as is evidenced by Josephine Baker. How did her butt elicit the claim by some that European civilization was finished? Well, Josephine Baker is such an interesting person and character and um you know, she, some people said she had the most famous butt of the 1920s and she, uh, went to Paris in the early twenties. She had been a kind of chorus girl in New York and, um, went to Paris and she did this performance that was 
you know, she, so we actually don't know exactly what the performance was like because there was no video taken, but so you have to kind of piece together these different, um, descriptions of it, but she was either naked or kind of nearly naked. And she shimmied around. She, you know, she like did some butt forward dancing and in Paris, it caused this like massive sensation. You know, people were horrified, you know, it sort of was like, the way people describe like Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, you know, people were like fainting in the theater, you know, it's just like this big ordeal because she, you know, shook her butt on stage. And, you know, there's a lot of complicated reads of Josephine Baker. Some people think she was self-exoticizing, you know, that she was um, uh, like, she was sort of performing a, a stereotype of black femininity and, um that that wasn't a good thing to have done. I mean, other people think, see that there's a lot of agency in that performance. I mean, she was, I think at the time she was the most, the wealthiest performer in the world. I'm, I could be wrong. Don't like, I should fact check that, but she was definitely made a lot of money from her, from her performances and had a lot of choice in what she was doing. And she kind of, you know, she brought basically was bringing the Charleston to Paris, which was, you know, it, as many people know, it's like the expat, you know, like roaring 20s center of the world in a lot of ways. So it's a super interesting moment in the in the history of the butt. Shortly after this period, uh, certain individuals started becoming obsessed with the idea of what is normal, and that includes what looks like normal. And uh, this is exemplified very well by you in this book with uh, somebody by the name of Norma. Who exactly yeah. is Norma? Yeah, so no, no, uh, Norma was, well, she's not really a real person so much as sure. a statue. <laughs> uh, and she had a friend. His name was Norm Mann. Um, and the idea here was that these two people, a gynecologist and a sculptor, you know, fun combo of people, I guess they, <laughs> they decided to get together and create these statues that would show people what normal looked like. And it was the late 1930s. Um, this was kind of, in many ways, the height, even kind of the, the end of the height of the eugenicist era in the United States, basically almost every famous person and every major university was really invested in eugenics as an idea. And these two men were eugenicists. And what they were trying to show was, you know, if your body looks like this, you should try to have more babies, basically, like you're the right kind of person to procreate. And, um, and it's interesting, because they're, they're selling the idea of normal, which is like, I think for maybe today, maybe today I'd be, I'd have to sort of think about this, but I think to some people like you're like, well, who wants to be normal? You want to be exceptional. You want to be amazing, you know, but they're sort of saying normal is the best thing you can possibly be. And that's how these, you know, that's what they're trying to, sh to sell essentially with these statues, which were um, put up in the American museum of natural history here in New York. And then they eventually traveled to Cleveland and where they got the data for, you know, what, what they thought they were doing is they were creating like the most, the average American person. So they took data from, um, for Norman, they use data from the army. And then for Norma, they use this really interesting data set um, uh, that was collected to create a schema for women's clothing sizes. But in both cases, you know, you really see their, their, the dominance of the idea of the sort of thin, white, strong, able-bodied person. And that's clearly what they're trying to, trying to sell. And they, prove the fleeting nature of their own ridiculous idea by actually holding a contest to find the woman that actually fit the Norma criteria. And despite the fact that I, they went through literally thousands of applications and even had a group of finalists, they could never find that, that person who fit those exact specs. Yeah. It's kind of wild, right? It's um, I mean, it's just sort of perfect in a way that they, they held this contest in Cleveland, thousands of women sent in their measurements, none of them fit, none of them were normal, you know, none of them are perfectly normal. So they gave the prize to this, the woman who came the closest. And to some extent, it proves their point too, which is like to be perfectly normal is to be incredibly exceptional. But it also shows us how the thing that they were suggesting we should all try to be is an, is an impossible ideal, like all ideals are impossible. Exactly. Uh, you, as you just mentioned, uh, the sizing of clothing is uh, 
far from an, an exact science. You did some fascinating research on how clothing companies create sizes, and there really is no rhyme or reason. One company's large can be another company's medium. As it pertains to women's clothing, though, and specifically women's pants and skirts, uh, who exactly is Natasha Wagner, and why is she the standard by which many companies uh, judge how their pants and uh, bottoms fit in the backside? Yeah. So Natasha, who's a, a nice, wonderful person. I always feel like I need to say that because I feel like I've, as the in the course of doing publicity for the book, I've made Natasha into like a minor celebrity maybe. Um, and it's not her fault that what I'm about to say, it's just, she has a cool job, which is she's a fit model. And um, that what that means is that her, her body, her like lower body mostly because she's used her she, she's a fit model mostly for pants um is the body the only body that most clothing companies use to fit their clothes so the way it works now is that uh, natasha comes in and they try on a pair of pants and they make them fit her and she comes in a few different times they try a few different prototypes until it fits exactly right she gives them a you know she says it needs to you need stronger belt loops so I can pull it up or whatever. She gives them tips and then that's it. That's the only time they actually try the pants on a human woman. Other than that, every other size is a math, you know, they use a mathematical equation to make it bigger or smaller. And, um, you know, if you're not Natasha, your pants probably are not going to fit that well. They might, you might be lucky, but probably not. And the data that they use, you know, the way that they do this, it's often a trade secret, the data that they, you know, it's based on some kind of data. It's not like totally arbitrary, but, you know, I think the idea here is that it's, it's basically impossible to make us make clothes that are going to fit the wide range of human women. And the clothing companies know that, and they're, you know, in some sense, they're doing the best they can, but it's just kind of not really a thing that's ever going to work if, it, if we're going to mass produce clothes. So, I mean, a thing now, you know, the kind of quintessential moment I think of thinking about this is being in the dressing room and trying on clothes. And for years I thought like, oh, there's basically, I thought like my butt's too big. Like I, there's something wrong with my body. And that's why these pants never fit me. But after talking to Natasha and kind of understanding more about how size works, I realized that it's actually like, it's not even just that there's something wrong with pants or the, these pants that I'm trying on. It's actually that there's something wrong with like pants in general or clothes in general, like that it's an industrial product that we're trying to fit in onto our bodies, which are by their nature, so specific. Yeah, very well put there. I love that this biography of the butt and the female butt does include the jazzercise era of the 1980s. Not only did you discuss Jane Fonda's importance in this space and really the popularization of it all, but you also document the rise of Buns of Steel, which anybody growing up in the 1980s has to remember that VHS tape or those VHS tapes, I guess. You even went to great lengths to track down Greg uh, Smithy or Smythy, the creator of Buns of Steel. So what did you learn from taking a deep dive into the creation and popularization of Buns of Steel? Well, Greg Smithy's a real character <laughs> and, you know, he it was a man of his time. You know, he kind of he was a champion pole vaulter in college and he had he was a man with a dream he wanted to be a famous aerobics instructor and it was at a time when that was definitely a thing like Jane Fonda had you know created these aerobics videotapes that were massively popular and like it was like the reason why the VHS player became you know was in all of our homes when we were growing up in the 80s and 90s and aerobics had become this massively popular way to spend time, which I think is super interesting just on its on its own, because it was a way that women could basically participate in exercise, which was really new in the 70s and 80s. You know, Title IX had just passed. And before that, really, women did not do sports by and large, or if they did do sports, they were it was very suspect in a number of ways. So Greg Smithy in the in the mid 80s, he kind of jumps on this trend and he was teaching up in Anchorage, Alaska and uh, he had this butt workout that was really popular. And one of his students came up with this, uh, this name buns of steel, and it took a long time for him to sell it. Um, he was really broke and he owed all this money to like his landlord. And, um, 
but eventually he found somebody to sell it and it made a lot, a lot of money. And as he said, he made millions of dollars based on just that little phrase, buns of steel. Um, and eventually a woman named Tamalee Webb was, became the actual buns of steel. Cause although Greg Smithy did the, um, he was the star of the first video. They realized they actually wanted in order the, that the people who did aerobics were women and they needed a woman to be the face and butt of the, of the franchise. So yeah, Buns of Steel was super, super popular. But I think the like a thing we can sort of start to think about about aerobics and Buns of Steel is is the like what it was really selling. And a part of what it was selling was this idea that we're in control of our bodies. And it was at a time when being in control of yourself was a was really seen as a super important thing because of the new ideas about neoliberalism and the kind of um end of the New Deal era and it can sound kind of grand to be like, oh, it's about neoliberalism, I think. But I think it kind of was like it's like being doing these kind of like basically being in control of your body through fitness was a way to sh say I am like a literally like a self-made body. I am a self-made person. I can I can do these exercises and I can, you know, create the body that um, that I'm supposed to have. And for people who couldn't do that for any number of reasons, it was actually you know, it could be a very painful kind of mandate to have to live with. Yeah. Deb Burgard is uh, a another interesting example. That's kind of a subset of this ideology. Who exactly was she and why was she important in the story that you were telling? Yeah. Deb um, Burgard was kind of at the helm of a activist movement in the Bay area in the 1980s that they called fat fitness where, you know, self-identified fat women mostly were, um, you know, they, they, created aerobics classes for fat people. And I talked to her and to this other woman, Rosella Canty Letsum, and they had these kind of amazing classes for women who didn't feel like they could participate in aerobics culture because they were too large, but who still wanted to move their bodies around and enjoy the liberation that exercise can offer to all of us. And I think for them and talking to them, I, I found it very inspiring and kind of um, it, it kind of offered a way, like a corrective to what I was seeing over and over again in this research, which was just like, you know, modes of control and body ideals emerging out of these kind of intense historical moments about race and gender. I mean, obviously, this was another intense historical moment about race and gender, but here were, here were people who were trying to find liberation despite the control. And they really did. And they're, you know, fascinating people who still, those two women are still, you know, they're still exercising. They're still feeling great about their bodies. They're still finding ways to think in interesting ways about um, power, liberation, and fitness. Yeah, one of the elements that I found fascinating about this is that Deb insisted on using words like large and fat in place of obese and overweight. What was the rationale here? I think she, it was sort of a reclamation. It's like, um, you know, gay people reclaiming the word queer, which had been a slur for a long time. It, you know, I think it was, it was a way of saying, yeah, we're fat. Like that's okay with us. Like, why can't it be okay with you? Um, yeah. And I, you know, and they, they called it fat fitness then. And, and certainly now that is a, a very common, uh, thing that, you know, there's a lot of like fat activism and like, you can, you see this on social media a lot. It's the reclamation of that word fat, but it like, this was quite a long time ago and they were kind of on the forefront of doing that type of activist work. Yeah. Really interesting for sure. Well, I have to admit, uh, Heather, when I first, uh, read about this book, the Sir Mix-a-Lot song, <laughs> Baby got back. It popped into my head. And uh, I've thought about how to promote our eventual conversation. And Sir Mix-a-Lot continues to come to my mind, as does Buns of Steel, by the way. But uh, how much of a parody did Mix initially intend that song to be? I mean, I think Mix knows it's funny and, you know, knows to some extent understands why maybe why people think it's a fun song. But he didn't think it was a parody. He really was a man with a message and I, you know, it's not disguised what his message was. It's right there in all the lyrics. He wants, you know, he, he was seeing that his girlfriend at the time, who was a big butted woman of color, she was a model and she wasn't getting modeling gigs. She thought because she didn't have, you know, what I think he calls it the stop sign body, which was, you know, big boobs, super thin, um, kind of big hair, kind of like almost like a 1980s beauty ideal. 
um, because she had that, a big... We call that the Dallas, Texas look down here. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I guess that, yeah, I guess that's how I'm imagining it. It's this like big blonde uh, hair. Um, and so his girlfriend thought it was because she had a big butt. And, you know, Mix was like, but I love women with big butts. Like, what's going on? And so he writes this song kind of celebrating what he sees as uh, black uh maybe like what black men thought were was sexy that's basically i think what he thought it was and he saw it as a corrective to a super white idea of uh what was beautiful and what was sexy and you know he says all of that in the song really straightforwardly and we we take it as a parody or as a at the very least as a big joke or something funny i think mostly because he says the word but so many times and we just can't you know, f- for lots of reasons that we can talk about if you want. I think the word but just people think it's really funny and they, in a way, they don't take him totally seriously. Although, honestly, of all the things, like I think Mix really got what he wanted. It's not a, you know, like we live in a pretty or like, you know, at least we sort of have been living in a very uh, sexual, like a world where the big butt is sexualized, but the the woman with the big butt still needs to ha- be thin. It's sort of like there's still a stop sign kind of happening there. It's just a different different set of like a different part of the body that's being sexualized. It was a nice counter also to that heroin chic era of the 1990s, which was really a, a return to the flapper mindset, I guess. And by the way, the original definition of flapper was either uh, underage sex worker in England or uh, an underage girl whose body hadn't developed just yet. So you had this movement in the 1990s where it was trying to make, uh, I hate to say underdeveloped because everybody has their own body, but a body that almost looked more like a a teenage boy's body than uh, a young woman's body. And Sir Mix-a-Lot comes along to say, actually, uh, the opposite is true here. This is the best looking body. But I think it also speaks to this notion that everybody has a different interest and everybody has a different body type too. And we need to uh, find a way to try and embrace them all if possible. Yeah. And I think that's such a good point. And I think sometimes it gets like, it's something I need to make sure I say more is like, you know, there's nothing wrong with having a body that's super thin or kind of androgynous. Like I certainly wanted that kind of body when I was in the early nineties, but it's not that we should be celebrating any one body over any other body. Like people have all kinds of bodies and they're all great. You know, there's, there's, Generally, like we're all, you know, we find people who find us attractive. We have relationships if you want them. Like there's really nothing wrong with any particular body. It's that the, that there's these cultural pressures that make it so that one body is considered better than another kind of body. And it was one of the things I wanted to explore right from the beginning of this book is just like the bizarre, odd thing that is like a body type coming in and out of fashion, because it's not something that we can actually change that much about ourselves. So, you know, it's great that Mix was celebrating the big butted woman, but at the same time, like, I mean, there's much that's wrong with that song too. There's quite a lot of misogyny in it, but there's also the thing where it's like, he's still saying there's one kind of body that's better than all the other kinds of bodies. He's not, it's not exactly like a body positive anthem. It's just a big butt anthem. (laughs) Just an expression of what he loves. (laughs) Why have women's butts become so much more openly discussed since around the turn of the century, Heather? I mean, it's such a good question. I think um, there's a lot of factors at play. So in, you know, there's this kind of important moment. So in the early nineties, we get Sir Mix a lot. There's sort of like the rise of, hip hop, particularly hip hop songs about big butted women um, or about big butts. Uh, And then there's this moment in 1997 that scholars, butt scholars, which that is a thing, um, talk about. It's And it's when Jennifer Lopez is in this movie called Out of Sight and she does all this press for it. And, you know, she'd been in Selena. She was, she'd been a dancer on In Living Color. She was a a rising celebrity, but this was definitely like a crossover moment from her, for her from, uh, you know, Latina and hip hop culture into mainstream white culture. And all of a sudden, every magazine that's interviews her is asking her about her butt in this way. That's like really weird and funny and also just truly bizarre, which is like, they're just like, what's up with your butt? Which is not a very good interview question (laughs) because it's really hard to answer. I don't, I wouldn't know what anyone could say about that um way too open-ended no pun yeah. there. it's like well what do you what do you mean i 
And I think when I started to really, I had read about this and then I started, I looked for all these magazines that were doing this. And one of the things that's interesting about it is before that moment, they didn't even say the word, but they used these kind of even weirder euphemisms like derriere or backside. And all of the articles had been about like how to get rid of your butt. And then all of a sudden in the, after the Jennifer Lopez moment, there's articles about what, how men like, you know, like is the booty, the new boobs or whatever. Um, and here's how you get a bigger butt. Like, all, like things really started to, to change a little bit. Um, and the reason, you know, there's, there's lots of reasons this might be the two that I've found. And like that a lot of scholars cite is the rise of hip hop as a mainstream form of music by the early two thousands. Most people say that hip hop is the dominant form of American music. And in hip hop videos, you know, at the nineties, we have to remember that most people kind of experience music through MTV. And it, so it wasn't just an aural medium. It was a visual medium. And a lot of hip hop videos were, you know, like uh, baby got back, we're showing women with big butts. And so this, this kind of becomes a mainstream beauty ideal because one of the biggest demographics for, um, for hip hop music is actually white men. Uh, so this kind of mainstreaming of what was at, was at one time kind of a marginal or a racialized idea of beauty is starting to happen by the end of the nineties. And also the demographics of America are changing pretty, pretty significantly in that decade, but it's not really until a decade later with Kim Kardashian that we get this like kind of massive rise of, of the big butt as a, as a beauty ideal. And that is really in part because of social media and the way that Instagram kind of brought into its algorithm, the butt as this kind of, um, in some ways it was like the dirtiest thing you could put on Instagram in the early days. And then it kind of, you know, it was like a snake eating its tail. It just could like keep move going and going and going. We may talk a little bit more about my fellow Armenian Kim Tar Kardashian here in just a second. I did want to ask you uh, one more question about that turn of the century era, which did include the very popular song Bootylicious by Destiny's Child. For the past 20 years, scholars and journalists have debated as to whether or not Beyonce is feminist. And if so, what kind of feminist is she? So I ask you, is she a feminist? And if so, what kind? I mean, I I wouldn't even begin to... That's sort of, I feel like slightly out of my jurisdiction. I think, I mean, I think that Beyonce has done a lot and it's, you know, she's a, to some extent, maybe the more interesting question is then is she's a feminist is like, how has she participated in feminism and what has she done for how women think about their bodies? I mean, I think the song Bootylicious, it's really different than Baby Got Back, right? Like it's a woman talking about her own body and there's lots to be criticized about the video, about um, the way that she's you know presents herself like there's there's lots we can sort of think about and complicate but I think for a lot of women that song meant a lot to them and it was a way of her kind of reclaiming something for herself I mean what she says that song is about is um you know she was being called fat in the tabloids because although there was this interest in the butts in the late 90s the late 90s and early aughts are like also this like extreme time of tabloid kind of cruelty where women are being harassed celebrities are being harassed for you know gaining a couple of pounds and the tabloids are just you know kind of at their peak also photoshop is coming in and that like what is even possible like you know all of a sudden it's not just like what your body actually looks like it's what they can do to you in photoshop so the the super skinny beauty ideal is kind of like evolving right next to this new this new thing that's going to become more popular in the 2010s of you know a little bit more curve and big buttedness and in fact some of the reason why that it becomes so popular in the 2010s is because in the 2000s the super super thin woman is very popular as a beauty ideal so Beyonce is in that song is kind of reacting to some of this criticism that she was getting in the press and saying you know this isn't bad it's actually good and it's you know when you look at a picture of Beyonce in 2002 or whenever that song came out it's just like this this is who they thought was fat this is totally bananas so you know whether or not she's a feminist I think it's the question is, I do think she was trying to do something that's interesting and she she did advance the cause of you know thinking in new and expanded ways about bodies and I think for a lot of women that song was super meaningful 
All right. So why was 2014 considered to be the year of the butt, Heather? Well, this was a, a something that, you know, I think the New York Times, Vogue magazine, they all declared it to be such. And it's coming off of, you know, about five years of Kim Kardashian growing, growing in popularity, that very famous um, magazine cover of her where she's, you know, shown in silhouette with the champagne going over her head and landing on her butt uh, comes out that year. And it's on the heels of this Miley Cyrus performance at the VMAs where she twerks. And so it's just this kind of, you know, apex moment, although in some ways it kept going after that. It's just, that's when they started talking about it more of this interest in big butts as a part of mainstream white culture. So yeah, that's, and it was also, you know, the Brazilian butt lift was more popular than it had ever been that year, although it got more popular. Well, it's like, it's a little, those stats are a little complicated, but it, it continued to rise in popularity after that a little bit. And, um, this, yeah, this ideal just really felt like it was everywhere that year. Was the Brazilian butt lift exactly what it sounds like? <laughs> the, the Brazilian off? butt lift is a, it's a plastic surgery procedure where they, um, they lipo sucked. I'm, I'm still like my copy editor and I went back and forth is like lipo sucked <laughs> a word out, uh, fat out of your stomach and they inject it into your butt. So they are not just making your butt bigger, but they're actually making your, um, middle smaller. And it's a pretty dangerous plastic surgery procedure because if it's not done right, there can be a embolism that can, you know, kill you actually. And it can be quite dangerous if it's not done well. And, um, it's a, and it, it, in like the, like in the nineties, it was basically not even a thing in the U S and then by the mid 2010s, it was one of the most popular cosmetic surgery procedures in America. Still doing those masochistic things all these years later. All right, final question now, Heather. For somebody who has spent the last half decade researching and writing this excellent book, it's one of my favorite books of 2022. Oh, I can't wait you. to release the conversation in early 2023. What is the next big thing for women's butts? Oh, man. Well, you know, there's this thing going on right now that I'm getting asked a lot about that, like, you know, maybe Kim Kardashian took out her whatever she did, she had like is reversing her Brazilian butt lift. Maybe, um, thin is in like, maybe that, like the thin ideal is coming back. The truth is like, who knows, probably because of the way fashion works, because big butts have been in fashion for so long, they will certainly go out of fashion. And, you know, I think it's important to question even like what it meant that they were in fashion because it was never like all butts are okay now or all big butts are okay now. It always had to be on this very thin woman, um, kind of like the Sir Mix-a-Lot ideal. It wasn't, it wasn't Deb Burgard's ideal. It was definitely much more like Sir Mix-a-Lot's ideal. Um, and so I'm, I assume that will sort of be part of it, but like what I hope would happen is that there would be, you know, a continuation in the interest in, body positivity, which also, you know, did kind of get more popular as social media got, got bigger in the 2010s, but I don't think it's probably very likely because the history of bodies and the history of butts is a history of, you know, people trying to control what bodies mean and what butts mean. And I think probably we'll just see some new version of that moving forward. She is Heather Radke. She did an awesome job of uh, really diving into the history of the butt and butts, a backstory. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Heather, thank you so much for the time today. And thank you for this wonderful book. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for tuning in. For more of the show and to connect on social media, visit BooksOnPod.com. Talk to you next time on Books on Pod.